Man, good morning. Good morning. How are y'all? Good, good, good. Hey, I am excited to start Malachi. Uh, praise the Lord for an extra hour of sleep because that is deeply needed. Um, if I just like run off stage, my bad speaker, if I just like run off stage, all right, uh, that is for your benefits because you do not want to see what's happening, okay? And so, uh, Zach, you could just come up and finish us out, all right? Amen. There we go. Okay. Uh, here we go. We are in Malachi. Uh, I told somebody recently, like, I was super excited about this series as a whole. And uh, they were like, Mal- Malachi is a book in the Bible? All right. And so if you were like, Mala what? All right. You're not alone in this. Okay. Uh, it's definitely a, a understudied and looked at book. But um, before we dive in, I actually want to uh, go ahead and give uh, a couple of quick just kind of church announcements and uh, what's happening at the well just in general. So uh, you've kind of heard this teased out a little bit over the past couple of months, and uh, a lot of you probably already somewhat know some of the things that uh, we are planning. But um, as the well, uh, we are planning on sometime probably in January, maybe February, uh, actually switching over to two services, all right? Um, all right, four people were excited. There we go. Okay, so <laughs> uh, there's a couple of reasons, all right? One of them is that two weeks ago, there were literally 12 people sitting on the floor in the back, okay? And so God's just been doing a ton, a ton of growth in our church as a whole and been bringing people to come to know him, bringing people just to fellowship with us. And so um, we want to be able to create space to allow that to happen. And one of the things that we're committed to is sort of being here on the east side in central East Austin. And so just so you know our vision kind of holistically, all right, we want to stay somewhat in this area, somewhat in central Austin. And we feel like, man, God has called us here to be able to be in the center of the city, to reach the city, to be able to send out into the city. And so as we stay centrally located, uh, we want to be able to impact the area that we're in. However, as you know, uh, East Austin is about $1.3 trillion per square inch right now, okay? And so being able to actually stay here is difficult. And so uh, we have a great setup here at Campbell. We get to serve the school like crazy. And so we want to be able to still do that. But our hope long term is that we would actually find some sense of permanence, okay? And so, (coughs) excuse me, as we're switching over to two services, (coughs) That's not sickness. That was me swallowing my spit weird, right? Uh, As we're switching over to two services, uh, we want to continue to kind of look for more space. And we want to be able to uh, find a space that would accommodate a few hundred people for us to be able to gather as a family, okay? Now, we know every time that there's a a major shift like that, it creates a ton of questions, okay? And so one of the things that we want to do is we want to provide space to be able to ask some of those questions, to ask man, wow, what is going on? Ask some of those concerns, all right? And so uh, over the next two Sundays, on the 12th and the 19th, uh, after service, and the library will have just a, a small question and answer time. So if you have questions, concerns, you can do that there. We'll have more vision casting. We'll have more things that come out. We haven't had every single dot and, 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 and T sort of crossed, right? But we really feel like, man, this is what God is calling us to do next and to be able to create space. You know, we recently changed handing out the Bibles instead of putting them on the floor because he said, man, if, if this would prevent one person from being able to hear about, understand, know who the Lord is, then man, woe to us if we would say, ah, oh, we would just rather have it the way we're used to, right? And so as space has gotten bigger and bigger, I've talked to actually three people over the past two weeks who uh, a friend came in late and they couldn't find anywhere to park, so they just went home right? Or people came in, they don't really know where to sit, and then we don't see them again. And and maybe that is just because they've only been here once. Maybe the sermon was really bad, all right? We'll take credit for that. But, uh, man, there's a possibility to where, hey, we just, 
we just don't have enough space right now. So we want to be able to create that, okay? So we've prayed through this a lot, fasted through this, really sought the Lord. It's really been over the past six months or so that this has been sort of in our heads a little bit. And so uh, we know that there will be some questions with that, right? Like we really thought about serving because we don't want to tax out anybody. And so what does it look like to serve well? Honestly, most things won't shift almost at all. In fact, in our staff meeting last week, we learned that it would probably take about seven more people per Sunday to be able to make it run, which we have way more than seven people that's been coming around, right? So we can actually do that, that we still want to be an intimate family, okay? And if you were a part of Covenant Community last week, you saw there were 38 people that came in, and yet there were probably more tears last week than any Covenant community uh, celebration before because, man, as we grow bigger, we actually want to grow more intimate. We want to stick in with this family and be able to really be a family together. So there's a lot with that, all right? But we wanted to kind of present that, and so we'll hear more. It'll keep rolling out some, but ultimately, man, we want to create space. God's been doing a really, really cool thing here, and we want to be able to see that keep happening. And so um, if you are new and you're like, man, it is hot, and I'm sitting right next to somebody, and there ain't no space, there we're making space, all right? We're trying, Okay, and so uh, that's sort of what God's doing. So we'll continue to give you more on that. All right? All right, there we go. Now it's eight people. We just doubled it. Okay, we're going to get all of you already. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Malachi chapter one is where we'll be today. Um, if you do not have a Bible, the ushers will be coming forward now. Uh, you can just raise your hand as they pass by you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take and keep that. That's our gift to you. You can also type in this link right into your browser, and you can follow along that way. Uh, it'll have all the scriptures and notes and all those things, and we have a lot of notes here today. And so uh, make sure you find a way to follow along. And so Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, all right, as you're turning there. So if you're in Matthew, you got too far, all right? Um, and Malachi uh, is sort of fun because if you've been with us for a while, we actually started in January in Genesis, and so now we're getting to do the last book of the Old Testament. And so we sort of bookend our year with the first and the last book of the Old Testament. And the good thing about that is that Malachi actually uses a lot of the themes that Genesis has. And so if you were with us, you have a little bit of a sneak peek, a little bit of an advantage there. But Malachi was sort of writing to a group of people that in a lot of ways, they were just kind of going through the motions, all right? They were just kind of doing the same old, same old, and, and they were indeed God's people, but they weren't really acting like they were God's people. They were kind of acting almost as if they didn't really believe in God at all. And so there was a lot of, of controversy, honestly, within this time, and uh, maybe better put is that their belief wasn't really altering their life. And so they said, yes, I'm a Yahweh follower. I, I follow the king, okay? But their belief wasn't really altering pretty much anything about them. Before they came to know the Lord and after they came to know the Lord, those, those two things looked really similar, okay? Now I want to be fully transparent here, all right? I think that as a church that we do not necessarily represent Malachi all that well. And here's what I mean by that. As I'm meeting with people, as I'm discipling people, as we're going through things like covenant community and stuff like that, like, like there's a serious hunger for Jesus that he's put within this church. And it really is profound where people truly want to know the Lord. They're trying to give their lives to him. They want to actually follow him with their lives. And so I think that we really, really do want to love and know Jesus. Obviously, some of us still struggle. But even within that struggle, I see a struggling forward, right? Like a, a stumbling forward as we're trying to know and see who the Lord is. However, I also think that we'd be kidding ourselves to say that there isn't at least a little bit of Malachi in each of us. 
And every single one of us, there's a little bit of something that would cause our hearts to desire to stray from the Lord. And slowly but surely, we end up just like the people of Malachi. Furthermore, I think for a lot of us, there are certain areas in our lives that we have segmented off where we're kind of playing God in. Right? Like, like we think that, or maybe we're just playing ourselves. We're not really playing God, right? But, but we haven't fully given our lives completely to him. We don't give him our best. We don't recognize him for who he is. And so I think all of us, if we were honest with our hearts, would recognize, yeah, there's a true struggle here, okay? And so I would rather be preemptive as a church rather than reactive as a church. You following that? As God uses our body to do awesome, cool things for the Lord, I would rather preemptively say, here's how we do not end up like the people of Israel in the Old Testament who kind of forgot about God and who he was. Because God was still using these people to do some awesome things, but in a lot of ways, they were losing their first love. And I do not want us to be a people that are like that. I want us to love Jesus so much, friends that he would be the center, that he would be the focus, that he would be what is on our mind. And Malachi helps us see how we do that and how we can not stray. And so I want us to have affection for our father, for our friend, for our groom, for our king. And I pray that Malachi would actually allow us to do that, that we would not go wayward as a body as God uses his body to do awesome things for him. And so I'm excited about this book because it'll be a good heart check. Okay, literally over the past several weeks as I've been preparing for Malachi some, there's been several moments where the Lord's just kind of like taken an arrow and shot it at my own personal heart, right? It's kind of like, gosh, be gentle, Lord, all right? As my daughter would say, no heart spankings, please, right? And God's like, no, 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 it's coming down, all right? And so that is what Malachi is. And so here we go, Malachi chapter one, go ahead and flip over there. And uh, we are going to pick it up right in verse one. So it says this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Stop right there. That escalated quickly. All right? Like already we see a massive heart check that's about to be happening, okay? I do not want us to grow common with this. The God of the universe... The holy, the reverent, the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty that we just sang about, the one who is totally separate from us, he says that he loves us. I love you, says the Lord. That's how Malachi starts, right? And so I don't want us to grow common with that fact because honestly what happens is, is God says, I love you, and they say, how have you loved us, God? Right? That's how I read it the first time, okay? And really, in a lot of ways, right, I think that it is a dangerous thing when we do not see or believe the love that God has for us. Let me repeat that again. It is a dangerous thing in our hearts when we do not see or believe the love that God has for us. When you think, okay, God, yeah, I, I get it. You love me. This theologically, intellectually makes sense to me. But, but really, God, like, like, how have you loved me, actually? It is a very, very dangerous thing, okay, because it will lead us astray in a lot of ways and lead us to thinking all sorts of false things about God. And so a couple of things to just give context to us. First of all, that Hebrew word there for uh, love is a present verb, and so, or have, I have loved you is a present verb. And so that could better be translated probably, I have always loved you, I love you right now, and I will continue to forever love you. The reason that's important we'll get to in a second, but it is not conditioned based off of what they were doing, but rather off of God and his love that he just loved them. But I want us to notice something here about this book. 
before he actually gave them a charge of repentance, before he said, here's what you need to do, here's how you need to follow me, here are the rules that I want to lay out, here are the ways that you are going astray, before that, he actually laid out the gospel, the good news. I love you, God says. Before he gave them the law, he gave them his love. Before he told them what they need to do, he affirmed in them, no, I care for you. I love you. You are mine. And God interacts with us like that too. So it's important for us to actually get this verse that God loves us like, like you, friend. Like, like God loves you, okay? Despite what happened last night and the fact that you didn't really want to come to church this morning, right? Or despite what happened last week, or despite how often you've been in the word, or despite whatever it may be, like God says, I love you. This is a profound truth, but they're doubting God's love, right? Why? Why are they doubting God's love? Well, if we look back in the history, we actually recognize that really the the situation that they were in was a pretty tough situation, And they assumed that it should look a certain way. And because it didn't look a certain way, then they just came to a conclusion that God must not love them. So they were in some suffering and they assumed that their lives should look like this. It should be like this. But because they were suffering, they thought, well, that must mean that God doesn't love me. And I think if we're honest, that is usually what makes us begin to question, does God love us or not? It's not actually his character, and it's not even really anything that he personally has done. We usually take our situations and our circumstances and then say, they're not how I want them to be. God, how have you loved me? And so we miss it there, and we go astray in a lot of ways. And so we need to recognize that our situations or, 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 or the circumstances that God has us in, that they do not reflect the love that God has for us, that these two things are separate because the Israelites, they married these things, and that led them to thinking all sorts of dangerous things. And we too can be tempted to think that our situation actually is an indicator of how much God loves us. Friends, there couldn't be anything further from the truth, okay? So let's read that again now. Uh, Malachi 1, pick it up in verse 2 again. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And so Israel says, God, how have you loved us? And God responds essentially with saying, did I not choose you? Right? Like, like, did I not choose you? Remember how there was really nothing special about you or, or your situation or your circumstance, and yet I chose you to be mine anyway, okay? Now, there are a couple of words in here that will probably give us pause, and so I want to go ahead and address those words so that we can get to the truth that's underneath this because I don't want us to miss this extremely important truth. If we are going to understand God's love for us, then we have to understand this, okay? But... That word love and hate always trips people up, right? And so uh, typically in the Bible, the words love and hate aren't used in the same way that we would use them in today's language, okay? Sometimes they are indeed interchangeable, but most often than not, there's a totally different definition, okay? This is not talking about a, a psychological hate right? Like, like the way that we would normally use that word. And so like it makes me want to throw up and die, okay? That's normally what we think of when we say hate, 
Like, I hate Austin traffic, right? I hate Taco Bell. I really do. It's so gross, okay? I hate cleaning up my girl's throw up, just straight up, right? I, I should stop here before I get myself in trouble, okay? I would say something that I probably don't really hate. I hate Satan. There's another one, right? So, like, we hate these things. They give us something happens inside of us. It kind of turns within us. But that's not really what God is saying here. In fact, Robbie Galati, a biblical scholar, says this. The words love and hate should be understood in their conventional sense as chosen and not chosen. Since God chose Jacob to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, he loved him. Since God did not choose Esau, he hated him. God went against the standard rules regarding the priority of the firstborn son by electing Jacob. Notice also within this that this doesn't mean that Esau is without chance. Okay, but rather God chose Jacob, even though there was nothing despite Jacob to actually use Jacob to bring forth the redemption plan. And so in that God is displaying his love for him in that way. Another way we can look at love, hate is actually by looking at these two verses. They'll be up on the screen, so you don't got to turn there. But in Luke 14, verse 26, it says, if anyone does not hate his father and mother, right, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. However, then in Ephesians 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, either Paul was like, Jesus is wrong, right? Like like Jesus said you should hate your wife, but I'm going to say, no, 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 that's not true at all. You should actually love your wife. And so either Paul and Christ are contradicting here, okay, or like there's something different about these words. They're not mere opposites the way that we would use them in our culture, And so Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you have to look at your wife and kids and be like, ugh, you disgust me, right? Like that doesn't even make any sense. We know that to be true, right? No, what Jesus is saying is that compared to me, okay, then you must reject them and choose me. I must be your number one. In fact, so much so that it would look like you are thoroughly rejecting them because there are no idols before me, not even your wife. However, you can actually hate your wife by choosing Jesus, but then love your wife by giving yourself up for her. These two things aren't mere opposites. You tracking with that? And so the way that this word is used in scripture is not the way that we tend to use the word, all right? And so here too, God isn't saying that when he thinks of Esau, it just makes his heart burn, like, oh, I hate Esau. But when he thinks of Jacob, it's like butterflies in the field, right? That's what we think of love and hate, but that's not what God is saying at all. In fact, this letter would prove the opposite. God's actually really frustrated with Jacob here, and yet and still he says, hey, I love you. I have this feeling of, or, or, or this, uh, this action of chosen that I have placed upon you because you are my people. I will use you to bring forth redemption because despite them, despite the drama that Jacob caused, Despite all of the shortcomings, despite the way that Israel honestly, seemingly tried to profane the name of the Lord, God still continually bestows his love and affection. He bestows his plan upon Israel. And that's what God is saying here. God still chose them. God picked them to be a part of redemptive history. We won't turn here, but if you jot down Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, he says the same thing to Israel. He says, hey, you were the smallest amongst all people. You were the the tiniest clan. There was nothing that special about you, and yet I chose you as my beloved possession. You are my treasure. You are the one in which I am going to lay out my affections on. It's kind of similar to like if you were single, right, and you choose your spouse to marry, you are displaying your love for your spouse. It's not that you hate all other women that exist, 
or hate all other men that exist, but you are loving them because you are choosing them in that way. And you think, as a single person, blessed be the person who marries me, right? Or maybe only I, only, only I thought that when I was single. Maybe I don't know. But, right, like, like, no, like, that's what, okay, and God's saying, hey, look, blessed be the person with whom I display my love for. I choose you, Right? Now, the trick is, is that when we marry somebody, we give ourselves to them because we really, really, really like them because they do a lot of good things for us often, but we don't do pretty much anything for the Lord. In fact, in a lot of ways, we kind of make it hard on God to be God because he's holy, and yet he also needs to display his mercy and love, and yet he's a just judge and a king, and yet he wants to be a father, and we don't really submit to that a whole lot. And so really in God choosing us, he's actually going out of his way for his covenant. He's showing forth his love. Just like Israel didn't really have much to offer the king, like let's be real, friends. You didn't bring a whole lot to the eternal kingdom of Christ when he chose you, did you? I don't know. Maybe you're more into yourself than I was, right? But like I'm just being sincere. Like, what do we bring to the king? Like, all the ways that we royally just honestly screw God over, over and over and over again. And yet he says, I love you. And then we have the nerve to say, how, God? Because I chose you, the Lord says. If you are a Christian, if you know who Jesus is, if you have a relationship with God, that is because God chose you despite you, and that should make you feel so unbelievably loved that it wraps you up in all of eternity for affection. You serve him fully. The problem is, is that we're kind of into ourselves, and we kind of actually think we're sort of awesome, so of course God chose me because look at, look, Lord, look how I serve you. And we end up missing the mark. No, God chooses us despite us. And as we actually recognize how little we bring to the kingdom, but how much he actually gave to us, then that gives us all an affection for our king who should have never chosen us. In fact, that's the very uh, thing that we say about God. It's his mercy. He gives us something that we do not deserve. Or he withholds the punishment that we actually do deserve. God bestows his covenantal love through this. In fact, every single time the doctrine of election or predestination is mentioned in Scripture, it is always interwoven with God's love for us. In fact, let's read two other ones just so that we're clear on that. We just saw that in Malachi. It says, hey, I love you, says the Lord. How? Why? Because I chose you. Here's another one in, the, uh, in Romans. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29, it says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he goes on and on. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because God chose you despite you. Right? Keep going in Ephesians chapter 1. It says this. Starting in verse 4. Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Charles Spurgeon says this, I'm so glad that God chose me before the foundation of the world because he would have never chosen me after I was born. (laughs) I mean, I don't know, but I can attest to that truth, right? How do you know God loves you? Because if you are sitting here today and you know the love of God, like, like, do you think you chose that? Scripture says that our hearts were dead, right? Not incapacitated, right? Not barely breathing. They were dead, right? Dead things don't move, right? Dead things don't have life. They don't make decisions. They are dead, right? And yet our hearts were dead. Then God says, no, 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 no. You. I choose you. Friends, if you are a Christian and you doubt God's love for you, all you need to recognize is that you are a Christian because God loves you. God chose you before the foundation of the world. God laid out the gospel. He said, this one is mine. Listen, friends, I'm just being sincere. I know the wretch that I was without Christ. Like, I remember. And despite me, he chose me anyway. Man, friends. Don't miss this, right? Don't miss this. This is such an important piece, okay? If you're a Christian, God chose you. About three months ago, I was reading Malachi, and I got to verse 2, and I honestly thought, yeah, God, like, how have you loved me? You know? What what have you done to display your love for me? And I felt like God took a sledgehammer to my heart and said, did I not choose you? (laughs) Right? Sledgehammer necessitates pain. It was like a sledgehammer of love, right? (laughs) I don't know what the heck that is. Butterflies came out afterwards, right? It was convicting, but it was good at the same time because it was like God loves us, friends. And so God chooses, right? And even though Esau was supposed to get the blessing, he was the oldest son. God said, I'm going to choose and use Jacob anyway. And even though if we're honest with ourselves, there are probably way more moral people than we are. There are probably way more humble people than we are. There are probably people that if they came into the kingdom, they would serve God's kingdom more faithfully than we do. Despite all of that truth, God chose you anyway. If you do not believe the love of God for you, then you need to recognize that the fact that you are sitting here worshiping today is evidence that he has poured out his love and his grace lavishly on you. God loves you, friends. I have loved you, says the Lord. And once we get that, we are then able to follow him because we recognize that he gave up everything despite us. Despite who we are, despite what we would be, God gave it all up, okay? There's more that we could say around this topic, but if you wrestle with it, struggle with it, I would love to chat through it because I really do think that this doctrine actually places us in the position to receive God's love the best, to recognize how unbelievably gracious he is, to choose somebody when they're going to be kind of good. No, nah, people will do that. To choose somebody who would be a wretch like me, that shows forth love. Love that cannot be defined except for agape love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this is what God says, right? So point one is that Israel did not believe God's love. Because of this, they were in danger of not really passionately and truly following God. Y'all are like, hold up, point one, we've been at this for a while now, all right? I figured since we're moving to two services soon, I got to get all my long sermons out now, okay? So so tell your neighbor, that's not funny, I'm trying to eat, (laughs) all right? 
But God, we're going to fly through the rest of this because we need to get this, okay? This was the foundation of the whole letter. And we're going to just kind of sprint through the rest of this now because with this understanding, we're actually able to then uh, uh, operate within the love of God, okay? So keep going. Verse 6. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. <clears throat> if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Point two is that Israel did not honor God's authority. Israel did not honor God's authority. In verse 7, they probably didn't actually say, we despise the table of the Lord, right? That's what verse 7 says. But they were showing that they were despising it by their actions. Just like none of us in here would stand up and be like, I hate the Lord, right? I don't really want to follow God. But we actually show that in our actions. We show that in the way that we carry forth with God. We show that in, in when we offer something half-hearted to God. And this is what they were doing. They were offering half-hearted things, but really it was pathetic things in a lot of ways. God says, come on now, would you offer that to your governor? Joyce Baldwin, she's a, a, a theologian and a commentator. She says this, mauled animals were considered unfit for human consumption and were to be thrown out to the dogs, Exodus twenty-two thirty-one. To offer them to God was an open insult. God is far more than a governor. He is an eternal king. And God says, would you really offer that to me? Right? Like, would you really give yourself to me like that? Okay? Now, let's have a come to Jesus moment. Don't we do some of the same things? At least I do. I don't know. There's not a lot of head nodding going on right now. But I do, right? Like, we frequently, we, we sort of reject God's authority in a lot of ways. Like, look at verse 9. Look at one of the ways in which they did it. They essentially said, let us offer up something to God so that God may give us blessing. God, if you get me out of this situation, I promise that I will, right? I know I haven't really been reading my Bible, God, but, but man, if you just show me some, some, some joy today, then I will give you, Right? And we do kind of the exact same thing. We don't give ourselves to God, and then we desire God's blessing. And then when God doesn't bless us, we get mad at God as if he owed us something in the first place. We do the same things. I don't know. Maybe I'm saying we. Maybe only I do this, right? But I know that I do this, right? I get frustrated when God doesn't give me something because I'm like, God, look at this. I'm preaching and I'm sick. You owe me, <laughs> right? As if God hasn't already given me all things in his son. And we end up profaning God when we act like this in a lot of ways, right? I'll give 10% if you just give me $6,000 more per year, God. That's all I need, I promise. Or whatever it may be, right? We actually show what our heart's condition really is before the Lord by our actions. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, 
right? Faith without works is dead. Your works actually proves the faith that you have. This is what Malachi is saying. And then we get mad at God, like he's a vending machine or a genie in a bottle, and we press A6 and the, the, the bag of chips that we want don't come out, so we smack the vending machine a couple of times, right? That's how I treat God in my prayers sometimes. And God says, I am a king, right? I could crush you, God says. But it's because of my covenantal love with you that I don't. Do you not recognize what you're doing, right? And I know that my heart does the same thing. Now, I love this because in verse 6, he actually draws the difference between a father and a master. A father is an authority figure, but one with an intimate relationship, right? A master is also an authority figure, but it's one who rules over you. And God says, hey, I am both of these to you. And when we don't honor God, giving him the, the authority that he deserves, the glory that he deserves, friends, we're missing it. We don't see him for who he is, right? And we completely miss the mark in that way. It's convicting to me because I give God my little leftover lambs in a lot of ways, right? I may give him 10% of my money, but I give him 4% of my affection as if God doesn't deserve all of me. And we miss the mark there, right? Out of everyone that we should be honoring, it is God. He is a God, He is a king, eternal. Let's finish off. Verse 11. It says, From the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations." Finally, point three is that Israel did not observe God's law, okay? Israel did not observe God's law. I mean, come on, friends. We don't even have to expound here, right? Like, this is true of us as well. In fact, in verse 13, they sort of snort at God's law, right? They go, right? Come on, God. You really want us to do this? You really want us to offer up the best flock in our offering? And they sort of have this content toward God's law. Once again, Can't we do the same thing? You really want me to attend church? It's hot in this joint, and the cowboys are playing. You still want me to raise my hands and worship God? Come on, right? You you want me to not have sex before marriage? God, this is the 21st century. Get with the times, right? God, you, you want me to actually give my money away to the church? Half the churches are corrupt anyway. And we start justifying God's law. Right, And we make excuses and we snore at it. It becomes a burden to us, not realizing that all of God's laws are for our joy. We snort at them and we sort of live how we want because we do not see God as king. We, like Israel, do not observe God's law. We do not submit to it. Because when he says, hey, share the gospel with your coworker, right? He just said three times, my name will be known amongst all the nations. We go, come on, God. I have a reputation to uphold. As if God's law is something that is a suggestion to us. 
as if he is not actually the king and the ruler over all things, okay? Now, here's where I think that this ties together. I think that all of us have a propensity to sort of float between one of these two things, and it's actually based on how we recognize God's authority. We either see God as a father to be honored, or we see God as a master to be feared and reverently respected, but I don't think that we see both of those things at the same time, at least most of us, okay? So for example, for me personally, I honestly do not have that much of a problem with viewing God as a king. Like, when he says to do something, it just kind of makes sense to me, right? Like, God could sincerely crush us, and he doesn't, right? Like, like God is truly over all things. Like, him being a king, man, that just honestly kind of makes sense to me. And so because of that, I just confess to you over and over again, what was I struggling with this whole week? Does God really love me? Because I can see him as an authoritative king, but I don't recognize the intimacy that he longs to have with me as a father. Part of this may be the way that I saw my father. He was a, a taskmaster in a lot of ways. And so he was more like a king than like, a, like an Abba that scripture would uh, uh, lay out. And so I can follow a law, man, give me what to do. But what is the danger when I don't add this piece in? Well, I become pharisaical. I begin to think, God, you owe me something because look at what I am doing for you. Because even if you're submitting to a king, a servant still deserves his wages. And I begin to treat God like that and, and think about that. I think some of us, though, I mean, we see God as Father. The love of God, it kind of makes sense to us. We go, yeah, yeah, man, like God wants a relationship with us. And when we lay out the gospel, we go, man, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen, right? But then God's law, <laughs> kind of scoff at it if we're honest, Right? We kind of get weary with it. We think that it's a burden rather than a joy in a lot of ways. And what happens is, is that rather than turning into a Pharisee like I am prone to, we turned into somebody who just does what they want with God. And it's sort of Jesus is my homeboy mentality. Like he's not an eternal king. And I think that both of us, we have this propensity to skirt between one another. And this is what Malachi opens up. And if we're honest with our hearts, man, we need to understand the gospel and we also need to recognize that in response to that, we follow God, friends. We do what God tells us to do, right? Like this should not be profound, but a lot of times it is in our culture. And so what do we do? If we flirt kind of with this side or we flirt kind of with this side, how do we sort of flip the ship? It could be easy to say, go try harder, Okay. It could be easy to say, hey, just go and, and, and try harder. Make sure you see God as king. Stop playing around. Read your Bibles, dang it. Right? Or it could be easy to say, God loves you. God loves you. And we implore and we preach and we try, okay? But I think the way that we actually do that is we actually take our eyes off of ourselves and we place our eyes on somebody different. And we see who actually this was pointing to, and that is our king, Jesus. See, Jesus was the true and greater Israel, Galatians makes that really, really clear that all the places that Israel failed, Jesus actually did not fail in. And if you look at Jesus' life, you begin to recognize that he truly did recognize God as Father. He called him Father over and over and over again, yet he also recognized God as King. And he submitted himself to God, not my will, but yours be done. In fact, 101 times in the book of John, Jesus calls God Father, and out of those 101 times, over 80 of them are directly connected with God's will. 
And so at the same time, he sees him as this intimate father, but yet also one that should be followed. So much so that Jesus follows despite his own desire, even to the point of death. Yes, death on a cross, the scripture says. God does what it takes. Jesus does what it takes. He fulfills both of these. This is how we should act, but we don't. But Jesus comes and he acts that way for us. And by belief in him, what happens is, is we now have the ability to enter into this covenantal relationship with God where we follow him. Here's why. Because when Jesus was on the cross, he lost all intimacy with God as a father. And God became a wrathful judge that poured out the sin of you and me onto Christ so much so that he does not say, my father, my father, how have you forsaken me? Even though that's all he almost ever called God all throughout the scriptures, he switches and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he loses the connection with the father and he goes and does whatever it takes and submits to the king even upon the giving up of his own life. He does this so that you and I, friends, can have that relationship with God. If we believe in Jesus, now we can enter into the covenantal relationship with God because before the foundation of the world, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can actually begin to follow God, so we can actually submit to God and to who he is, and we can walk in God's will. Jesus is the true and greater Israel who fulfills what Israel never did in that covenantal relationship with God. They either saw God as their homeboy... Well, they saw God as their king, and they turned pharisaical, but there was no mix. In comes Jesus, the perfect mix. And so, friends, how do we then actually begin to emulate this? Well, we have faith in the Son of God. And as we believe in Jesus, as we fix our eyes on the cross, then we begin to follow him. And in doing that, we begin to look like him. Now that the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, he can convict us where we're not really observing God's law. And yet he does this with grace that we may follow him purely because he knows that we are weak like sheep and he will guide us and and comfort us and, and build us up. At the same time, for people like me who do not believe in God's love for them, God bestows it over and over and over again. And as we look to Jesus, we recognize just the extent that God's love has for us. Malachi is actually pointing us to our greater Savior. And in doing so, it says, Now, friends, you go and do likewise. And so we need to have a heart check, right? Do we view God as father and forsake him as king? Do we submit to him as king but do not have that relationship with father? Where are we at? Because it is a dangerous place to be in, friends. And if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us flirt with one of those. And then we start going wayward and we wonder, where is God at? When we start losing the the connection to God, we wonder, where is he at? It's not God that's absent. It's us. We're missing it, friends. And so let's focus our eyes on our king who gives us that ability to walk in this. This is how Malachi starts off. And it's hard. And it's an arrow to the heart. But God does it because he loves us. And if we submit to him, recognize his kingship and his fatherly love at the exact same time, then we have that relationship that our soul screams for, friends. Pray that we would be a church that looks just like this, that we would love Jesus, and that we would actually follow him, not just with our words, with our hands, with our lives, with all that we are. I love you guys. Let's pray.
Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, thank you. God, I pray, even for us who may be wrestling with you and with who you are today, Lord, that you would help us to see just how much you love us. Gosh, friends, maybe you're in here right now and you, you're really wrestling with the love of Christ or, or you don't want to give your life to him because you know that that means you have to obey and to follow him. I just want to encourage you, friends. God is worth it. He's worth it. He is truly a good father. He is truly a perfect king. Only God encapsulates both of those at the same time. And today we can enter into that relationship with him. He is not an abusive king because he's a good father. He is not a lackadaisical father because he is an eternal king. We get both what our souls crave at the same time. We get that in the person of Christ and God our father. So I pray that even today, friends, if you have been hesitating to surrender your life to Christ, that today would be the day that you say, Jesus, I'm yours. Man, maybe that's why God put that annoying coworker by you that kept inviting you to this church called The Well, and you came in, and it's 107 degrees in this joint, right? Maybe that's, that's why God had just had you wake up and had this discomfort in your heart, and you Google search churches by me. Maybe God is trying to woo you to himself. I pray that you would give your life to him even today. And God, I pray that all of us would give our lives to you again, Jesus where we are not respecting you as king, help us to submit to you, Christ. You're a good king. Where we do not believe in you as God, our glorious father, our beloved father, help us to believe in you, Jesus. Pray that we will be a church that does that. Praise in your very beautiful name. Amen.